on social media, you may have seen a post or two from Black Tree Resort in Colorado. Now, full disclosure, it's my brother's luxury glamping property, and it is amazing. And you don't just have to take my word for it. Vogue, USA Today, and even the Denver Post all agree. Now, I know many of you are looking for experiences to give and maybe even receive this holiday season, especially after we've been cooped up for so long. And Black Tree is just that. It is such an amazing experience. From the cozy private tents and private bathrooms and the gourmet meals delivered to your door, to the horseback riding, UTVing, fly fishing, and even in-tent massages, there is something for everyone in the family, which is why I wanted to mention this cool gift box idea from Black Tree. So what they've done is to ensure that the experiential gift doesn't skimp on the joy of unwrapping, Black Tree is sending gift recipients a holiday box filled with some of their best-selling items. Items such as hoodies, t-shirts, baseball caps, and a fan favorite, Bronco the Bear, a stuffed animal to be clear. So what you do is you choose from a two, three, or four night stay and custom select the goodies for your gift box and then Black Tree will make sure your loved ones have something to unwrap and receive now while also anticipating their 2022 stay at this premier glamping location. Now, head to blacktreeresort.com and see for yourself why I think this is such a great gift idea. Hey listeners, we've got lots of new things coming for 2022, but before we did that, I wanted to take a look back at our early episodes and re-release my top 10 picks for the month of December. To be clear, picking my favorite episodes is like picking my favorite child. So I based my decision on three criteria. One, interviews of women who overcame something outside of the regular struggle of running the business. Two, a unique industry that our guests disrupted. And three, guests that were just as much teachers as they were storytellers. I hope you enjoyed these episodes and please be sure to follow us on Instagram. We'll be rolling out our big news throughout December and I wanna make sure our podcast family is in the loop. In the fourth throwback episode, you'll hear from fashion designer, Rachel Pally. And there were lots of reasons I wanted to include this episode, but two in particular were one, Rachel's decision to have inclusive sizing long before it was a thing, and two, her story about landing a huge deal with a very popular shopping network and the hard decisions that came with that deal. I also loved being in Rachel's home with her newborn at the time. You got to see firsthand exactly how this designing mom was juggling parenthood and running a business. I hope you enjoy this show with Rachel. Hello, thanks for stopping by Liberty For Her, where we unpack one woman's entrepreneurial journey to help another woman launch her own. I'm your host, Netta Jones. We're here to listen, learn, and liberate dreams one episode at a time. So hey there, Liberty listeners. Here we are again for another session. And this time we have the awesome Rachel Pally with us to tell us her story, how she started out, um, what she's up to, and to give her wisdom to all you wannabe fashion designers out there. So Rachel, thanks so much for being with us today. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about um, kind of your history? Did you always want to be a fashion designer? No, I did not. <laughs> Wrong answer. <laughs> yeah, no. no. Um, I grew up with parents who worked for themselves, and they had this amazing flexibility um, to be both parents and business owners and entrepreneurs. And so the only thing I ever knew I wanted to do was to work for myself. And I wasn't wow. quite sure what that was going to be. Um, I studied geography in college, which is an incredibly useful degree. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I did that in a second. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's pretty much all of it. That's the whole statement. Um, and I studied dance and I went to Berkeley and um, I had to work in the costume shop for a certain amount of hours to, to get my dance minor. And I loved 
making costumes. I had grown up sewing with my grandma in mm-hmm. like a very general, she did it and I sat with her kind of way. Yeah. Um, but I'm I, by no means like a accomplished seamstress. And I just started to experiment with it and I loved it. So was it a surprise? It to was you? a surprise. It was like I I wanted to dance. I didn't want to sew. And then when I started the sewing, I was like, this is so fun. You have this thing that's A, and you all of a sudden turn it into B, and then you're like ready to go out. So <laughs> I loved it. But so until I started doing that in college, I it never was on my radar at all. And so you had just said your major was geography. Is that what you just geography? Said? So what? Um, Why? What exactly <laughs> did you hope to do with that? I thought I wanted to stay in academia. I wanted to okay. be a professor. I don't know Makes what sense. I wanted to do. I started out in ethnic studies, and then I did women's studies. And you know how you do when yeah, you're how you do yeah, in, in <laughs> yeah. Berkeley, and you're 18, and you're just figuring it out. Um, so I didn't. I didn't really set out to have a geography degree, but when I looked at the credits that I had already accumulated. I had a great advisor who said, oh, well, that all fits into geography. That'll get and, you out of here yeah, sooner that'll get than out, later. Get you out. And I love those classes. I love architecture and I love city planning and I love sociology. It all kind of fit turned, together. It all fit together. I didn't study maps. I just studied the use of space. Okay. Okay. So take us from, I really, I needed to take those classes or do those hours um, in the costume department so that I could get my dance minor to now I'm a fashion designer with my own business. Take us through that. So, so my parents for my like 20th birthday or something got me a sewing machine because I was so into it from my costume shop. And I would go to the dollar fabric store yeah. in downtown Berkeley and buy whatever whatever was cheap and mostly stretchy because I didn't know how to like put in a zipper or a dart or anything. So <laughs> right. I was just kind of going with it. And I started making things for myself and for my girlfriends and one just on our kitchen table in college. And then I was visiting, I grew up in Los Angeles and I was visiting here and I went into this, there was a time where Chungking Road in Chinatown was like the cool up and coming. It didn't last. It's not as cool and up and coming. There were galleries and there were clothing stores and it was just like had this buzz and I went into the store and the woman commented on my dress and she said she loved it. Who makes that? I said, I made that. She said, oh, do you have anything else I can see? And I said, oh, I have my laundry in the car because I'm visiting my parents and that's what you do. You bring your laundry home. So I brought in a bag of laundry and she, which is weird. <laughs> is this advice you're giving No, right don't okay, do okay, this. Don't this is very, okay. I feel like this is very time sent. Like the yeah. fact that I was making these very handmade looking clothes yeah. was very in yeah. at the time. This yeah. is 2002. Okay. It was, there was a space for it. That would not fly right now. Sure. That's just not how people are dressing right now. Sure. But at the time that deconstruct, people were like cutting up vintage t-shirts and yeah. like sewing them onto a dress. And it was like become, it was a yeah. look and it was kind of everywhere. And so there was space for that to happen. Yeah. And she said, I love this. I could sell this. I started making her stuff and sending her dresses every couple of weeks. She was selling it. It was like was way better than- Was she buying them outright or was it on no, consignment? No, it was on consignment. But wow. you know, what did I know? It was, I was still in school. It was, I was babysitting for my income. So it was pretty wow. cool to all of a sudden get like- I'd say. A couple hundred dollars in the mail. It was a, it was did a you big get deal. the buzz? Like, wait a minute. Not really. But after a few months of that, she said, when you graduate, you should really consider starting a clothing line. I was like, huh, okay. Okay, I will. And I moved home after college. Yeah. This was at, that was all my senior year of college anyway. And I moved home and set up shop in my bedroom with my sewing machine. My mom, for my, my birthday's in the summer, so I moved home. And then it was my birthday, and she bought me one roll of black and one roll of white fabric. And I just went to town. Went to town. Like, I can't speak for <laughs> the quality <laughs> of those styles, but yeah. I made a like a six or eight or 10 things. And I started to, well, I was, I cold called stores and I just tried and people were like, no, who are you? And then I would show up and I just was fearless. I was 22 years old. I was living at home. I had nothing to lose. It's, I didn't have like a job lined up. So, and I didn't have any living expenses because I'd been home for five minutes and I just tried it. And people, well, I got a lot of no's. Yeah. But 
sometimes people said yes, and Madison said yes, and and um, Planet so Blue you've said yes. Your game from the quality. If Madison well, said yes, yes. No, right so now, for those who are listening oh, who don't know Madison, oh, that's yeah. like a thing to get into Madison. At is the a really time, big deal. I was getting into the top stores in LA, but at the time, again, people could they were okay with the handmade mm. nature of the clothes. It was just there was this movement going on. You know, it's right now it's not the same, but like there's this crafting movement happening in LA and everything, you know, it's the general store, the look of the general store and it's all this handmade, you know, stuff. And at the time fashion kind of was having that moment and it's not anymore, but at the time there was, that was saleable. So how much of that was intentional? Like, I know that there's this deconstructed look going around, so I'm going to take advantage of that versus I just got really lucky. I was in the oh, right I place. Oh, I just got this. really okay. lucky. Okay. I just, this is just, that was the only way I knew to make the stuff. Okay. And it worked. Yes. And very soon after I got started, I, I like went, there's a few, there's an area downtown where mm-hmm. there, where production is. Yeah. And it's by the showrooms. And if you can walk into any of those buildings, there are bulletin boards that, kind, you know, people will say cutting service, you know, suite 505. And I just kind of did that. And I went in and I like looked at the bulletin board and I like knocked on doors. And then I found somebody who could do full package stuff for me. I brought him drawings or I brought him my sewn samples. He made patterns out of it. He did the cutting. He did the sewing. So I was doing very small production, but pretty early on, like pretty early on, I couldn't duplicate this. I could make something once, but I couldn't make it happen the second time. Did you realize that you were in the sort of manufacturing Mecca at the time? Did you get that? That, oh, I'm in LA and I have access to this. I'm going to take advantage of it. I don't, I don't know if I even thought about okay. that. This was just, just like, this oh, is the downtown. city where my parents they have live. That, yeah. They have that downtown. They have that downtown. If you're doing it, you can go downtown. I don't even think I thought about the big picture of the fashion industry. Sure. I just thought, well, of course, I'm going to move home after college. And, this, and my parents this. are in Los Angeles. And so I have to figure out something I can do in Los Angeles. But you can do anything here. This yeah. Is, did you understand the steps? Like, did you know, okay, I need to find a pattern no. maker. I need, so you were just learning. No. Knocked on yes, room I knocked 501 on, and they said, yeah. oh, where's he your, said, you're yeah, like, yeah. Let me I don't know. Get it. <laughs> yeah. okay. okay. So I met this guy, Hector, and he said, okay, this, he like took me under his wing and I learned so much from him because he did everything. All I would do is communicate this design to him and we would meet about it and we'd fit it on me or on yeah. someone who worked in his office because I didn't know all of the intricacies. Basically, everything that I've been able to stay in business a long time, but I did not start out with any knowledge about this industry at all. And I made a lot of mistakes. Yeah. And I also have learned a lot. And in the beginning, like, it's okay to make the mistakes. Sure. And the mistakes weren't that like terrifying and costly in the beginning because I I got to go home and had a place to live that I wasn't yeah. paying rent on and it just what it just wasn't they weren't not it didn't feel like I have the same adult responsibilities when I was 22 starting the business that I do now with a team of 26 people that have to stay employed you know yeah, it's just, it it's was different. different at the time I was yeah. just figuring it out so it was okay if I messed up I would just like do it yeah. a different way the next time. Yeah. It's, I mean, I think even for those listening who aren't newly graduated from college and don't have some of those um, opportunities to take the same risk, it's not don't take them. It's just you had room to make, it's not, I don't even want to say make mistakes. You had room to learn from doing. And for, again, some of our listeners who maybe do have kids or maybe do have a job and need to pay the mortgage and want to transition but need to find something that's a dream that's more stable, it may be that um, you just have to figure out how to get from A to B quicker. Yeah. And my hope is in listening to you, this podcast, that's what we're able to do. And and in listening to this information. And now there's the internet. Yes. There sort of was the internet, but not really like, not anywhere (laughs) here what it is now. But, you know, there used to be this book 
that was like the fashion industry Bible yeah. called the, it was the Tala book, Textile Association of Los Angeles. And it was like, you'd pay $200 or whatever for this book that was like Xerox copies of business cards basically. Sure. And it was outlined so you could be like cutter, go to the C section, look under cutters. And it had, it was like the white pages for but, the fashion industry. Yeah, but of course, I don't even know. I can't imagine that exists anymore because yeah. you just like Google it. Yeah. But at the time, like I, that was the best resource I could ever imagine everything I needed to know. And I was like, C for cutter. What's a cutter? Like, <laughs> I don't know. And so that was, I mean, now there's a lot more resources than I had sure. then. Sure. You know, you don't have to like knock on everybody's door. You can Google full package production Los Angeles and probably find someone to help you out. Do it. Mm -hmm. And is that person the equivalent of a Hector? I mean, was yeah. Hector He was my full package a production to B, a, to B, a to Z, a to Z rather. Okay. So finding a Hector. And I love that Hector was willing to take you in. I'm sort of curious. Did he, do you think he saw um, in you, I mean, it was an investment. If Hector took you in, he knew that, gosh, if this girl can, if we can get her going, you know, this I see something be. in her, this can be something for me. Not that Hector, yeah. you know, wasn't yeah. <laughs> very philanthropic and just wanted yeah. to help, but, but it must he, have been, I think must for, have been something. When you, for anybody who's starting out in, like starting out a partnership, you're hoping that if you put in the energy in the beginning and you help your partner sure. to grow, all it does is put more sure. business onto your team. Sure. So, you know, it's the same. It's the same when you find a fabric vendor, you hope that they'll, you know, give you good terms or like help you with the pricing, knowing that in the long run, it could really benefit them to build a business with you. Right. So I'm glad you just said the word fabric because I wanted to transition into that. Your fabric is a really big part of kind of the personality of the brand. And in doing some research, I've even heard you referred to as the Jersey girl. So talk to me a little bit about um, the choice to work with a specific kind of fabric and um, how much of that was I'm going to do this because I want to be known for this or I like the way it drapes or give us kind of some background on that. Cause it, there's a really, there's a cool component about it. That's really brand specific. And I just want to know if that was all intentional. Well, it didn't start out intentional. It started out that that's all I knew to work with because I was making dance costumes, but at the time nobody was doing it. It wasn't part of, now everywhere you look, there's Jersey. Yeah. But at the time I actually had to have the fabric when I, after I, when the business really got going, I started to mill this specific oh, wow. blend of modal and spandex that wasn't on the market. And now it's on the market. Any, anybody starting a line can just go and mm -hmm. buy it. It's, it's very easy to find it now, but there was only one mill in Los Angeles that was willing to knit it because it's kind of a, a fussy fabric. It can get pilly and it can get, it's kind of a pain in, in, in the butt to work with it. So even though it looks very simple, it also is, it was hard for me to get the right blend and to get the right weight and to have it be a lasting fabric. On the one hand, it's been amazing because yes, I've been like, I, I kind of had this part of the market cornered for a very, very long time. On the other hand, it's easy for people to look at the brand and feel like it doesn't feel fresh, even though mm. every season we have, it's fresh. It's like my whole job is to do something sure. totally different every season. So for the last many years, we also have done swim. We have also done sweaters. We've done linen. We've done, I'm wearing a sweater right now that is not Jersey. That is Rachel Pally. Um, it's really cute. And thank you. And thanks for giving me one on my way out. That's so I will. sweet. I'll uh -huh. take this off. This is my sample. <laughs> that is the best part of my job sometimes is being like, okay, I'll just take one of these. Okay, I'm really into this you sample. Test it for it's the, the only market. one that lives. It's the right thing to do. Yeah. It's the only one that exists right now. Um, but I feel like it is both, um, it's amazing because it, it created a brand identity. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like people say, oh, is that Rachel Pally? It's like it's a recognizable look. But on the flip side, for, say, a store who used to carry the line will be like, oh, I've already carried that. I'm done. But if they actually look at it, they see that our silhouettes are very on trend and that the manufacturing is different or that we have, you know, a lot of different details. Or if you get close, you're like, oh, they have velvet, they have denim. So we have made a point to be diverse. But then there 
half of our accounts will buy the subgroups of the, the linen and half of the accounts will say, well, that's really cute, but I come to Rachel Pally for Jersey, so I'll stick yeah. with the Jersey. And and I would think that part of the the benefit of the Jersey isn't just that consumers know it, but they like the way it looks on them. Yeah. So if that's selling yeah. and you're coming up with new prints, new colors, new yeah. silhouettes, that it should... And it is yeah. always fresh. Yeah. And the other thing about Jersey that's so special is that it really can work on everybody. Yeah. It really actually does. It's, we don't just say like there's something for everybody. We really... We really, it really works for everybody. Well, and I mean, we should bring up, I don't know how long it's been, but that you have now this new plus size. I'm saying new. 2007. Yeah. We launched the plus size. at all. It was exclusive with Nordstrom at the time. There wasn't anything in the contemporary world that was for plus. You know, you could go to the mall and find some like pretty sad. Yeah. Yeah. Polyester or something. I mean, I went and bought a bunch of samples to do sizing measurements, and I, like, couldn't believe what the options were. And so when I suggested I wanted to do plus size, I got a lot of resistance from the sales teams. Um, People felt like that was going to hurt my brand, brand, and I thought that that was the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. First of all, most of America is over a size 8. Yeah. And why shouldn't those women who are over a size eight, still get cute clothes. I like yeah. could not understand what was a bad idea about it. So I pushed and pushed. Nordstrom said, fabulous, thank you, we will do it. So I had an exclusive with them for a few years, and then I opened it up to, to everybody else. But um, really, that I cannot believe that everybody doesn't do a plus size line. I just don't understand why people well, don't and actually, do that. So you just said 2007. So that's actually, in a lot of ways before it's time in terms of people more on a higher end or more designer, more um, curated brands creating a plus size, a plus size line, you were kind of ahead of the curve, I would say. Yeah. Okay. There was nothing. Which was good. Good for you. Yeah, it was for being first to the market. And, and it sounds like even breaking some of those barriers to entry in terms of dealing with the sales team and educating yeah. them a little bit. Yeah. And by the way, Jersey is a great fabric yeah. for a plus size yeah. body. Yeah. For, it's, for anybody. It's great. Yeah. And yeah. because of just the nature of just my own aesthetic, we cut very generously. People sometimes think that our line runs big, but really more fabric just is drapier and yeah. it's more dramatic and it's more flattering and it's just, it's more expensive looking. It's just beautiful yeah. when you have the extra. When you cut it down, it's yeah. usually what you have to do to save money on your, on your per piece cost. It's like, it's better to just have more. It's heavy. It just drapes along your body. But um, the line really lent itself to to work for a a range of sizes. A range of body types. And And so that brings me also to the fact that you have quite a celebrity following and celebrities in music and also in fashion, in, um, what do you call it? TV, movies, actors? That's Mm -hmm. the word I'm thinking. how has that been a benefit to the brand and how has that or has it hindered? And by that, I just wonder, like, do people think, well, gosh, if Beyonce is wearing it, I can't afford it? Like, I'm just curious about that. I think it's done nothing but been great. Great. Where I think awesome. that celebrities wearing your clothes are fabulous. There was a time where um, during a Britney Spears mental breakdown, she was photographed in one of my dresses barefoot in a public bathroom at a gas station. Like, that wasn't helpful okay. for me. No, thanks. We didn't Brittany. put that in yeah. the in the <laughs> press kit with her sh- like half yeah. shaved head. Yeah. Okay. But okay. for the most part, like every other time it's been, it's been great. Good. Yeah. Because people, celebrities are so aspirational. And yeah. even though our line is priced high for mid range, yeah. it's, it's actually by well no priced. means yeah. Yeah. Gucci. Yeah. So, you know, you may not be able to get like the custom Gucci dress that Beyonce is wearing, but you could probably afford yeah. a Rachel Pally dress that, you know, or you can wait till it's on guilt. Yeah. <laughs> you know. But it's, you know, there is, it's more accessible. It so is more any accessible. of that press. And also about the about launching plus at the time, like right now, there's so many plus influencers. Yeah. Instagrammers, bloggers that basically run the show. That yeah. didn't exist in the beginning when I was getting started, not even for years. So 
if I was just thinking about how it could have exploded at the time had that already been put in place, especially considering I didn't really have any any competition. Right. And um, we had started talking before we got the mics rolling. We had started talking about the fact that you guys are really using new media um, and new media, both personalities and platforms to inform us, your audience, uh, your fans about what you're doing. How did you decide to go from kind of traditional, especially after having so much success with celebrities, how did you decide to go from traditional kind of public relations avenues to looking at new media as being, you know what, we're going to focus our energies and our dollars on this. I think if you don't do it like that, you go out of business. That's just, that is the thing. There is no, that's just the way things are sold now. Yeah. And did it, could you get there quickly or did it take some time for you to transition? Like it took me a while. I said something and my husband was like, it's not called a Twitter. It's a tweet. Yeah. Like like (laughs) on a certain level, like doing our social media, like I have to hire someone to do social media. I am not going to do that. Like it's just not me. I'm like, I I don't, I'm not going to take behind the scenes pictures of my family and like post them unless someone is texting me to remind me to do that and send it. Yeah. So yeah, it did take me a little while. And I was like resistant. And I think a lot of people who have been in the industry for a long time um, had a hard time with this yeah. transition. Because you feel like on a certain level, and I sound like a snob, but on a certain level, there was this high level of intellectualism and of of magazine of magazines. Yeah. People who, you know studied journalism and then interned and busted to get into the sample room at Condé Nast and like worked crazy hours and just paid their dues. And it was, there was like a different level of respect for that industry. Yeah. And a lot of those people who had made careers in magazines had been replaced by these 22-year-olds with an iPhone. And that is a really hard pill to swallow, especially having watched this transition. And not just how that affects my business, but how that affects my... um, I'm on the younger end of that generation of now unemployed editors, but... or or editors who have had to shift into digital. But it's... It's hard to see that and yeah. to see that like all these people, like it, is that becoming obsolete and all they, instead of writing a brilliant article, you only need to have like however many characters for a tweet. It's kind of sad, yeah. especially when my industry could be considered to be very vapid. It like kind of doesn't, you know. Help. I think it's, I actually, not that anyone cares, but I actually think it's going to swing back a little bit. I do too. So I was in New York during the church and state Condé Nast one, you know, the advertising side was over here and the publishing side was over here and had friends who worked in, in those, um, separate buildings. And I remember when like, they were like, it's all going into one building. And even when digital was, Um, starting to blur those lines a little bit. And the very first company I had in New York working with um, emerging female designers, much like yourself a long time ago, um, I was very like, no, 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 that's our editorial. We're getting that. Nobody can tell us what to say or nobody can pay to play. And now that's a whole different landscape too. You only pay to play. Yeah. And so navigating like how much of this is real and how much of this is not and how much of this is like, look, the landscape's changed. I have to learn to do this. But I believe what will emerge, and it's already happened in quarterly magazines, in books that are written about industries, things like that, where people are like, okay, I'm going to do, this is my fast read you know, fast fashion, the equivalent yeah. of, and this is my slow read. This is my, I'm going to sit down. I want I want the smart, the intellectual, the, the kind of deeper digging. I want to know what's behind the scenes. And I think it, another platform will emerge and, and really already has. Like what I was saying about how there's this movement, this crafty movement. Yeah. It's kind of yeah. like that. Yeah. Things went from, they swung so far into the, um, into the H&M Zara land yeah. 
that now there's a movement for fewer, better things. And people are really paying attention to, I mean, made in the USA. My clothes are only made in the USA. That's very important to me. But that there are that same thing where it it went from fast, 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 that it has to swing the pendulum to the other direction is happening in the industry just style-wise as well. Yeah. And we're tired of seeing ourselves, right? We're tired of, I mean... Oh my gosh, you got that at so-and-so, I got yeah. that at so-and-so. Yeah. And those those so-and-so stores are great in that they also are equalizers. Like mm-hmm. a lot of people have access to Just great like Instagram fashion. is, yeah. and everything trends. is an equalizer. But sometimes you do want something that's more special or handmade. or And there's so many brands who are capitalizing on whether they, they're actually saying we're a slow fashion brand mm-hmm. Or just the way they're pricing themselves. We're saying we're a bag for forever. Yeah. You know, you're going to have it. Just buy one. Yeah. So we're trying something new around here. We're going to start acting like a real media company and partner with brands we love. Brands we actually want to share with you. We're doing this for a couple reasons. One, in order to keep bringing these stories to you, we need to pay the team that pulls it all together each week. And two, these collaborations actually provide another way for us to shout out and share female-founded ventures, as well as resources we think you'll love. Our first partner is someone that's near and dear to us. She's even been interviewed on the podcast. You can check out episode 98 for her startup story and her advice on scaling your business. This is none other than Marin Costello. Now, Marin's Jewelry is a brand that I've both worn and shared with friends. Her designs are always on trend, and for some reason, they never go out of style. How can you do both? I don't know, but she does it. Everything's made in the U.S. It's hypoallergenic and water-resistant, so you can wear it all the time. And they're committed to sustainable practices, like recently they've started using environmentally conscious stainless steel and sourcing products from manufacturers that share these values. And if you're a fan of layering, well, you're welcome. Head over to shopmarincostello.com. That's S-H-O-P-M-A-R-R-I-N-C-O-S-T-E-L-L-O.com and layer stack and load up on the gold and silver to your heart's desire. And there's no need to feel bad about this little indulgence because when you use the code NETA15, that's nada one five you'll get 15% off your purchase now through December 31st. So head over and get to shopping and remember to use NETA, N-A-D-A-1-5 to get 15% off all your shopping from now through the end of the year. Okay, one thing I really want to get to is the fact that you were on QVC. Yes. Okay. Okay. So I want you to tell that story and I really want you to tell it from, I know we have people, look at, there's laughing in the room. I can't wait to hear the story, but I know there are people who are listening who think this is it. Like you get on QVC. I mean, I saw Joy and all these people have seen the movie Joy and they're like, that's all I need, a mop and I'm done. So give us like the real story behind that. Like it, that worked for Josie Marin. Yeah. She was at, I was yeah. always saw her when I was doing yeah. my QVC stuff. She like had to move, she like bought a farmhouse yes. in Pennsylvania yeah. to move there because it was her everything. And that's amazing. That was not my experience <laughs> on any level at all. Yay. Thanks for even telling us. close. Yeah. So QVC approached me and three other designers, um, Jaron Ford, Cynthia Vincent. I don't even remember. Um, Somebody else, I can't remember. Okay. I hope she doesn't hear this. Um, and they were like, we want to get into the contemporary market. We yeah. are going to put all this money behind it. This is like, this is the future. This is your whole, your whole life is about to change. This is going to be the best thing that ever happened to you. Um, Did you believe that? Yeah. Okay. Oh my God. They like flew me out for, I mean, like it was so, I walked into that building First of all, you have to fly to Philadelphia. And at the time there wasn't even a direct flight. It was a nightmare. And I don't live close to LAX, so just like tack on the extra couple of hours. Yeah. And then I had to go all the time. I'd have to go just to check for samples. I went to like, oh, wow. so then you get to Philadelphia and then it's an hour from there and there's one hotel and there's, there's nothing. There's one Sheraton and then you have to like take the shuttle from the Sheraton. 
And so already it's not convenient. This isn't like going to New York and taking a few meetings. And while you're there, you like yeah. meet with a couple and magazines. And just to qualify. So sure, it's inconvenient, but it's inconvenient and pulling you out of your yeah, day out job. Of my, my yeah, real job. This is like where my revenue is. Yes. So they promised however million, however many millions of dollars in sales, they were going to push their marketing team behind it. We were going to do, I'm, I like had six or eight or 10 shows scheduled and I went into the first round of production. I approved, I, I went out there to meet with them. I approved the samples. They came in and they weren't even sort of what I approved. Not even like a little like how I approved it. The fabric wasn't the same. The fit wasn't the same, which I didn't know until I put it on to go on television. And I was like, I don't even know. I don't even know. I was wearing a wrap dress that like didn't even wrap all the way. It was um, with my name on it. And yeah. because, and they were, they were doing the production. So I was getting a piece of it, but they were like, for the many millions of units we're sure. going to sell. And again, can- just to clarify, so for those people who don't know, it was it was like a junior line. It was RP by- R- RP for QVC for, okay. or RP by Rachel Pally so for you QVC. Weren't, it, it wasn't, wasn't direct Rachel Pally, right. but also there was an assumption that my customer base who's paying 220 plus for the dresses weren't necessarily the shoppers who were going to notice it on QVC. So there right. probably wasn't going to be backlash for my main line. Right. Plus, you know, when you're buying something from that, that is a diffusion line, you don't expect the same level of quality sure. and, no. you know. Um, so it, it bombed. My first few shows I did sold out 100%. I like... I was good at it. I was happy to be on the show. It's such a totally foreign and bizarre scenario. You go, it's exactly like Joy. They're these like, you know, they're like, I'll meet you on Soundstage 5. And you're like, where's Soundstage 5? The place is like airport hangers upon airport hangers. It's massive. Wow. And it's every, it's over 24 hours a day is production. It's like the most well-oiled machine I've ever seen. It's it was an amazing thing to like get to experience, you know, and you're like shuffled in and out. Like they're so pro. Um, I met Bob Mackey. That was oh, that, so awesome. That is yeah. very cool. For that was all my of those most who know who Cher is. I was like, wanted to just like wear something sparkly and like jazz hands my way over <laughs> to awesome. Bob Mackey. So that was like the highlight of working at QBC. Um, but really it just was like so many shows and then the production just got worse and worse. So we would sell it out and then it would all come back. And uh. I wasn't financially responsible for that. I was making money based on what was selling. But by the time it all got returned, yeah, it just, and they didn't put any marketing dollars into it. Nobody knew that they were doing this. And actually I opted, I had my attorneys get me out of my contract because I was tired of having to go back and forth and like I was paying my own way and I was barely breaking even, but they were selling thousands of garments. It was, it was a little bit nuts. They didn't, it could have been very successful, but they didn't commit to it. And it really needs to, it's different when it's a, if you're pitching a product, it's on you. But for me, it was a partnership that they came to me to build a partnership about it. And then they just didn't have the, the team power to put behind it. So all four of the designers that had signed on with me, we all backed out. So it, it didn't. Interesting. And they haven't replaced it with a new um, so even contemporary, even internally, they were like, mm, we don't have this machine quite yeah. where we need it yeah. to be. So it kind of, but so yeah, I would get like a $13 check in the mail. <laughs> it's like stuff yeah. that like, I paid so much money just to go back and forth so many times and put myself up and, and for the amount of, then I was embarrassed about having my name on stuff that was coming sure. in. Which and also it's hard enough for me to want to have anything produced in China. In the long run, in like in retrospect, I should have just passed. It's like not really on brand for me. What feels on brand is being made in the USA. I'm from Los Angeles. This is where I live. This is where my tax dollars should go. This is where I, this is where you got your start. This is where I got my start and my human start. This is where I was born. (laughs) And it just doesn't make sense to me to like in a struggling economy, this is the economy that I should be supporting as a businesswoman based in Los Angeles. We're hearing more and more of that. And I, I think it's um, both because the consumer is asking for it, but I also think there's just a consciousness around yeah. it that people are like, yeah, I do want to put my dollars here. Yeah. Um, I do want to change. I, I want to be locally responsible. And perhaps in this climate in particular, politics isn't the way. So we're going to try and find our own 
our own avenue to do that. Thank you so much for telling us that story. I really appreciate your uh, candor. Sorry Um, if anyone was really excited about QVC. Maybe it could be successful for you. No, I think the lesson learned is, one, you made the distinction between a partnership versus going in with a product, which Mm -hmm. I think is an important distinction, and left a little wiggle room for Mm -hmm. QVC. And and also, I think it's just eyes wide open. Like going into these situations, um, you know, we we did an interview some episodes back with uh, a manufacturing company that had gone to Shark Tank. And they were like, sure, that was great. Sure, that was awesome. And we got two sharks to back us. But here are the things that we wish we would have known. And here are the things that we could have done differently. So I think it's good to have and that. And that's business. It is. Right there. That's what it is to it be is in business. It is business. And, and I, that's really important <laughs> that you say that because I think a lot of people go into business. So I, I consult. Um, mm-hmm. That's my day job. Mm-hmm. And um, they go into business because they have this great idea and they want to do this thing. And you realize, you, it's like you have to tell them, do you know that you're only going to do that thing like 10% of the time? Yeah. That the rest of the time yes. you're going to be doing administrative stuff, you're going to be managing a team, you're going to be doing all this stuff that you think is keeping you away from yeah. the thing you want to do, but yeah. that is business. Yeah. That, that yeah. is what it I, is. Like fashion is a very yeah. small part of my job. Yeah. It really is. I have a story that I've told a million times. I feel like I have to apologize for it now. But where this was a million years ago, living in New York, where a fashion designer said, like, this is all I want to do. I want to have my own brand. I want to be a fashion designer. I want to be sourcing fabrics in Milan and Paris and doing trade show. I mean, doing um, uh, runway shows. And I was like, okay, then maybe you don't want to go into business for yourself. (laughs) Because in order to do all of those things, first of all, it's years and money away. Yeah, And the reality of starting this brand is you're going to be in Atlanta or Dallas at a trade show with a Macy's buyer. Like yeah. that's your, yeah, that's that's your you. reality. Yeah. And what you're trying to get into isn't a runway show. It's like ENK and the docks in New York or something yeah. like that. That's, yeah. You're trying to get a good booth. The only way you can do that fantasy life of a fashion designer is if you are like, the, you are Phoebe Philo. Yes. That's it. Which, but even like Phoebe to had to her. come from she had something. To come from, no, you have to be her now. Yeah. You can't be her when she started. Yeah. Nobody like flies all over. Unless you are working for a yeah. big company where someone else is doing the bulk of yeah. the other work. You know, it's that's just not what the reality well, is. Well, and actually the advice was, why don't you freelance design and go work for somebody else? You actually yeah. don't want to yeah. be your own designer. Okay, so continue this wisdom. We're going to transition into kind of the part of the interview where you're really giving us advice and just telling the listener a little bit about what they should look out for, what they can and can't do, or what worked or didn't work for you is probably a better way to say that. So give us a, a window into, and I, I suspect you're going to say every day is different, but a, in a window into your daily life or maybe even week. Okay. Well, like we were just saying, yeah. fashion, the fashion side, the designing side. I mean, I do have a design team. So I oversee the design team, but I don't sit and sketch all day. I'm not entering CADs into the computer. I'm not on Illustrator. Um, I'm at all the fittings. So, I mean, in a week, I could be picking prints, sourcing fabrics, fitting samples, um, doing a check at my production facility, supervising a conflict in my staff. (laughs) I could be... Um, meeting with our accountant and crunching numbers. I could be answering customer service phone calls, maybe answering like, hi, it's Sarah, Rachel Pally. How can I help you? (laughs) Or like making up a name. Um, It's responding to emails. It's thinking about business development. It's um, contacting my own blogger contacts. I mean, really like I have an office and I like I, when I left yesterday, I realized I never even turned on the light in there. I was never in there at all yesterday. I yeah. put my bag down and I work almost all day on my cell phone walking around from office to office because, because I can't use the intercom. I'm not even sure how to use the <laughs> intercom, first of all. And also, it's just easier for me to have a face-to-face with everybody. It's, it's, a, it's checking out the the language for the new e-blast. It's selecting images to be used for our new campaign. It's making sure that we're happy with the with the sacks buy. It's yeah. double checking orders. It's sitting down and crunching last season's numbers and making sure, like checking to see how much fabric we need to order. It's checking in to make sure that my nanny is there. It's like all I do really is never stopping crazy 
multitasking. Yeah. I don't know how my brain functions like that, but it's like I have a hundred windows open all the time and I can't close them out until I get home. It's crazy. Do you think that that's a personality type? Like if you, is there a person that, I haven't asked this at the end, but you've given me a good segue here. Do you think there's um, a personality that you would advise, you know, a friend who would say, I think I really want to start a cupcake shop. I don't know. And there's something about her personality that you're like, I don't know. I mean, maybe you should bake for somebody else. Like, is there a personality? Yes. I feel like if I couldn't multitask the way that I do, I don't think that I could do this job. And I mean, I'm also a mom. So like, I guess multitasking is like, it's it's just what it is. It's just what your life is. But um, the hardest part I think for people to get their head around is that to be a business owner also means having to do the tough things like hiring and firing. And that is hard. That is hard. And that is not for everybody. It's being able to delegate and not micromanage. That is hard for people. I'm a very good delegator, but I wasn't in the beginning. I wanted yeah. to double check and make sure that like, well, if if I can do it the right way, then it's just easier for me to just do it myself. But yeah. really that is not a sustainable way to run a business. Somebody else has to do the things you can't do and you cannot do it all. So yeah. yes, there are personality types that I don't think are well-suited. If you're a people pleaser, you really can't be, it's like you really have to be able to hold a hard line if you're going to be dealing with finances, if you're going to be dealing with um, the internal conflicts of having a team, it is it is a lot of juggling. And it's a lot of, you know, like I'm also part therapist. It's like, it's sure. it's everything, you know, it's making sure, sure that it's a lot of different personalities in one building. And You're sort of the glue that yeah. holds all these disparate yeah. parts together and then somehow leads with a vision for what the company's going to be. Yeah. It's, it's, and then I come home and I do my other job. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. It is crazy. It is crazy. And I think it's just what I appreciate about your answer is just, again, that kind of eyes wide open, like do this. We support you. We want you to see other women who are doing it and be inspired by them, but go in knowing what the obstacles might be, what the reality Mm -hmm. is. And it's a lot of no's. Yeah. You hear a lot of no's. So that's the other thing for personality is you have to be comfortable with the no's because there will be yeses. But you have to hear a lot of no's before you get a yes yeah. sometimes, and it can't be discouraging. And that's training, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just growing up and feeling Empowered. good in your own skin <laughs> and knowing and kind of knowing that I can say no. Mm-hmm. Like, this is, it's okay for me yeah. to do that and getting more comfortable with that. And if and someone I, doesn't think that my dress is cute, that doesn't mean that they don't think I'm a nice person. <laughs> you know, it's like well, separating. Maybe they do. Maybe I mean, they if somebody don't says my dress I'm a nice is person. cute, they're out of here. No. <laughs> And I, and I also think I just want to say for those people who are like, whoa, this sounds crazy. I could never be an entrepreneur that you have to also measure what is the outcome. If the outcome is I want to make 10 units of so-and-so and sell them to one shop in a, at a resort, mm-hmm. that's great too. You can do that. Yeah. So it's knowing what the expectation is and what yeah. the, what the goal is at There's the end. There's a, a lot of gray area between yeah. like making something on a small scale and having a multi-million dollar corporation yeah. with like a board. Yeah. There's like a whole lot of gray area and you can scale it. I mean, now that I'm a mom, like my, my, the ceiling that I reach for or like the heights are are different than when I was, you know, in my 20s and single and what my ultimate goals are and how much money I feel like I need to make to be, to live the life I want. It's very different when it's sure. a juggle. Well, there's a different, it's it's relative in a different way. For sure. And it will change again yeah. as a mom, as they get older and there's a window that's open up to you. I'm experiencing that. Like, oh, wow, my youngest is nine. A window has opened for me. Like, they're all in school and there's no diapers, (laughs) as we were talking about earlier. And so things have shifted. And I assume there'll be another one or two shifts in that. Um, Okay, can you give us kind of the, like, I think I want to be a fashion designer. Uh, What do you think, Rachel? Like, what's the first thing I should do? I think the first thing you should do is intern. This is a very challenging time right now in the fashion industry. You know, when you look in the newspaper, people are spending less money on fashion, more money on experiences. Mm-hmm. A lot of um, big brand stores are closing a lot of doors. Things are shifting to online. I think it's, there's a lot of, um, of course, people are always going to need to get dressed yeah. and there will always be a need. 
but it's an interesting time to get started because it, it isn't coming in at in a heyday. It would be trying to work your way into an industry that is tight in the middle of a belt tightening. So it's thinking, well, is it, do you want to be on the brand side? Do you want to be an influencer? There seems to be a whole lot of room right now for influencers. How do I get, in How do you get into fashion without necessarily being a designer? Yeah. Um, but I think that for, I think paying your dues and starting in the bottom and working through, I think small working for small brands is really, really a good idea because you see how everything works. You so know, when specifically I ha- interning at a smaller yes, brand. interning getting or getting an entry-level job in a small brand because like in my business, we're, it's kind of an open floor plan and my newest employee sits in a room where her window looks out and she can pretty much see us during fittings and photo shoots. And you're just kind of, it, everything is happening yeah. And you you learn about order entry, you learn about grading, you learn about sample making, you learn about PR. It's all kind of happening, so it's it's more of a crash course. Whereas if you can if you start out in a huge company, you may have a very narrow yeah. position where you don't really I'm get learning to see, this one thing. Yeah, you're learning a one thing, which isn't necessarily going to help you in your next position. It's kind of nice to, and it's also when you're first starting out, you don't know what position you want. So it's yeah. a great way to see like, do you want to be on the administrative side? Do you want to work? you know, more creatively. And I think to get into like a creative side of fashion, to be into styling or into, you kind of have to start by assisting. And so for all of those who said, great, I'm going to go on Rachel's website and see if there are any intern jobs. Is there the availability to do that or the Sometimes there is. Right now there, you know, you never know. Send your resume and you guys will follow up. Okay, great. Um, Okay, so you talked about, I was going to ask you about common barriers to entry and you talked about the industry tightening. And I mean, on one hand, stores are close, closing, but on the other hand, online means I can get a Squarespace site and I can yeah. be off and running. What's the danger in thinking that way? I think that, I feel like in the beginning when um, websites were just, when retail was just moving onto web, everybody was opening their, it's like yeah. all College grads were opening a store. They were like, I like clothes. I'm into fashion. They went to the, they set up their own easy do-it-yourself website. But you're competing against the, Amazon owns ShopUp. Like you're competing against people you can't compete with. You just can't. And so it's a little bit tricky. There's, there's a, a brand called Doen that, um, one of the designers, her, her, Kids go to the same preschool as my son, and they have this amazing only direct-to-consumer brand. And that, I think, is the way that fashion is going to be going, Mm -hmm. where you make a better margin, you have more control over your brand identity, and it's they've built it through Instagram, and it's all direct-to-consumer. And it's I think it's brilliant. I just think that's brilliant. For a brand that's already existing like mine, um, I would have to say no to an existing wholesale business, that's significant. And I like, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to do that. But you're already in the space. It's not a barrier to entry. You're, you're, you've entered. I've entered. A a while ago. Yeah. But I I can't, it will never be my full, it will never be the bulk of my business until more shifts continue to happen in that Mm -hmm. direction. I mean, ultimately that's everybody's goal. You want to sell, instead of selling your product for wholesale for someone else to sell it for retail, of course you want to just sell it straight for retail. I mean, it's, that would be great. Um, so that's, you know, in marketing and in PR, that's really the way that we are driving business right now is trying to strengthen our e-com business, which has less overhead and it is, it, it does create a really nice relationship between your customers sure. when they're buying I was going to say, and then now you're yeah. literally talking directly to them. Yeah. Would there be an opportunity, and I'm making this up, I'm not in the fashion mm-hmm. industry, would there be an opportunity to develop a line that was exclusive, you know, kind of you talked about, I think you named it. Or, Go in. No, oh. Diffusion, oh, you said diffusion earlier, line. the yeah. opposite of what happened with QVC, where you create like a more upscale line that's only sold through your website that is direct to consumer. So you build that relation. Is that, what's the problem with that? Or is, or could that be done? When you're starting something new, I think. No, for you. Oh, for me. Well, because I already have my main line that's available online. I think it's just continuing to drive more traffic that way. And as more, you know, it's all 
we can see all the numbers. You can see like how many clicks and how many purchases. Yeah. So the more traffic we can drive to our site, the more um, diverse options we can offer as far as styling. We can we do a lot of business for plus size on our website. We do a lot of maternity business, and those are the things that really um, respond to the ads. They click th- the click through ads yeah. really come through to maternity and plus size. But it is it's just it's just keeping on an eye on the numbers and continuing to drive business yeah. that way, which will offset shifts in the industry and in, in the wholesale business. And we're hearing that outside of um, fashion. Um, again, another podcast we did, Manufacturing, they talked about that. It may have been after the podcast, but they talked about really driving more direct-to-consumer sales. And I ended up connecting them with a client because the client, I'm, a particular client I'm working with right now, that's the biggest issue. They're in all the big box stores, which is awesome. But they have to deal with returns. They have to deal with shipping the product, and it's a heavy product, to the big box stores. They have to deal with the big box stores can have sales and coupons and all these things that affect their bottom line that they have no control over. Uh, Where they are, shelf space Mm -hmm. is affected. So many things are affected. And at some point, you know, in looking at the numbers is like, you realize you could sell like 40% of what you do for your total year, 40%. And you would make twice as much money because your margin is so much greater. And being able to kind of look at the numbers in a way that they just, they're like, this is what we've been doing for a long time. And also it it gets the exposure where it becomes a brand name that people recognize because they've seen it on the shelves and then they're more likely to then Google it and then get to their own site. But it is, it's almost like a marketing expense to sell to the big box stores. It's the same with, with the big fashion stores to sell to... The department stores it's, is a very risky and expensive endeavor. Well, because it really they is. hold the power. Yeah, it's, it's removed from you. So, um, I, yeah, I think again, it's it's not just fashion. It seems like this is this is happening everywhere. Mm-hmm. So, um, we talked about getting into trade shows earlier when I gave the example of the fashion designer, and it's no easy feat to get into a reputable trade show. And where you are in the trade show, are you right by the front door? Who who are the people that are next to you? Mm-hmm. Who are the buyers that may be circling around that you don't know or don't know you, more importantly? Well, not um, to be catty, but the last few shows I've been at, it doesn't look like they're as stringent with their... Oh. With their <laughs> Interviewing process as they used to be. I mean, it really, they're feeling the effects of a shifting industry as well. And that makes sense that it would be so. Even shows like ENK, in order to rent out the Javits Center, they need to sell a certain amount of booths. And if a lot of brands are opting to not show at the show because it's very expensive and not always profitable, then they are kind of accepting a lot more people than they used to. And the you walk around and there's like a partition blocking off an area that used to have a bunch of booths that now doesn't, you know, or there used to be three floors and now there's only two. So everybody is feeling it. It's not even ENK. I'm not sure that the trade shows are the only way to go anymore. It's a totally, we don't show in Vegas anymore. I show in New York mostly four times a year, but sometimes twice a year, just depending. It's not for a small store, which is, you know, the most of the, the big stores are going to come see you wherever because they, they have reps in LA, they have reps in Dallas. We have a showroom in Dallas. They'll come to New York, but it's to be at the trade show is mostly to be visible for all of the small boutiques, which is a big chunk of your bread and butter when you're in the business. Yes. But also if you're owning a small store and it's you and three sales girls who own the, who are working at the store and four times a year, you have to leave for four days over a weekend, because usually the shows cross mm-hmm. over a weekend, and you have to leave on your busiest days to come and buy in New York and pay for your team to fly there and stay in a hotel. At a certain point, that's not viable four yeah. times a year. Yeah. So a lot of people are using things like Jor, which is like an order entry system that's online where they can you know, on, in their own time, just scroll through a bunch of new brands and they can see like, this is the open to sell. Here's the new collections. Here's, and you can order like one small, two medium, one large hit send, and it goes straight to the, to the showroom. And so there's a lot of ways now to buy that isn't necessarily having to fly to the trade shows. 
which I still do. I still yeah. think it's relevant, but it's shifting. And well, maybe you don't do four, you do mm-hmm. two. You know, I think it can, it cuts down mm-hmm. on, on uh, how much a business relies on that. It used to yes. be the only way. Yeah, it used and to I've be seen, the only way. I've seen brands who will videotape their line and send it to retailers. Like, here you go. Here's a videotape of it. If you want to see a sample, we'll send it to you. I mean, yeah. That costs nothing, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so you and mentioned- And then your sales team can be doing something else. Yes. Like maybe they can put the collection in their car and go to San Diego and sell it to three stores in the time that it would take them to yeah. like like get on their flight to go to New York. Well, and you can also move product from based on seasons more mm-hmm. quickly too. Yeah. The, you, the lead time has changed. So you mentioned Jor, Jor, mm-hmm. Jor. So give us a few more, your- these can be fashion, these can be busy mom managing life kind of tips, resources, anything that you feel like, I mean, you said I, I, I'm attached to my phone. So what are the things that you use on a daily or weekly basis? My nanny. Like yeah. <laughs> okay. We don't all have access to your nanny. So nobody can have her. I need her because without her doing yeah. her job, I can't do my job yeah. and neither can my husband. Um, obviously my cell phone, which is crazy. Cause I don't think, I think I'm like crossing into an unhealthy usage realm, yeah. which is, you know, me and everybody else that I know. And you know, all of you listening, you probably have the yeah. same problem yeah. as me. Um, I don't know. I think I, it's a battle. I don't know. There's Do just, you I wish I had more hours. A particular app that you really like or anything that you're like, oh, this is really helpful to calendar my days or I really like this um, resource to talking to the whole team at once. Is there anything like that? I'm so analog. I like a notebook <laughs> and a pen. <laughs> Yay! I, that is how I work. I like to jot down notes. Oh. Like you sent over some questions and I forgot to print them out. So I didn't write any notes because I, I'm not going to write them on my phone. I need to like print yeah. it out and I forgot to print it. So, you know, I basically only can function with a pen and a paper. I really, I just said I couldn't use my intercom at my <laughs> office. Like I better walk, walk around. I have to like, just have, I have like an extra pair of comfy sandals at the office in case I'm like wearing uncomfortable shoes. And all I do is move all day. From, from office to <laughs> office. Well, I think, I think, Basically, what you're saying there is all the things you mentioned that you do earlier mm-hmm. in the first question about all all that you do as an entrepreneur can be accomplished and managed with pen and paper. With pen so and thank paper. thank you for that, Rachel. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, one quick game that we do at the sort of end of our, our session together is I ask six questions. Um and you just give me your quick answer to that. But actually, I'm looking down at my notes, and there's one one more question that I'm dying to ask you. So even though we're, mm-hmm. we're running late, um, one thing that if you were starting your career now that you wished you would have done or you would have done differently? Well, I think just thinking that my whole job was going to be creative. You know, I've easily transitioned because I have a very entrepreneurial personality. So mm-hmm. I was okay with making the big shift. But I think I expected my business to be so creative. And really, it's business. My business okay. is my business. Which is, there's got to be a hashtag. Can we start that? Yeah. My business is yeah. my business. Um, oh, thank you for that. Because I think, again, it's so important to understand when you want to go into your small business, entrepreneurial, medium-sized, large mm-hmm. business, really understanding that's what you're doing. That yeah. is your career. It's everything. Is, is, yeah. You're doing all of it. Is and transitioning so, into that space of, I'm going to do all these things. Yeah. Um, okay, now, the quick six. So I'm going to ask you six questions. Just give me your quick answer. Nine to five job or flex, or nine to five hours or flex? Flex. Okay. Um, vacation in the mountains or the beach? Mountains near the beach. Ooh, okay. <laughs> we had one other person give that. You guys are sneaky. Um, work from home or office? Office. In your comfortable shoes going like from that, office yes. to office. I mean, yeah, I'd love to work from home, but I have two children, yeah, so like that's not work. It doesn't work. It doesn't it's work anyway. Work, but it does not it's work. Just, yeah, no. because you just look around and see everything no. you need to do. Um, work alone or with a team? Team. All the time? All the time. Yes. No, I mean, I have to do my own work by myself, but yeah. you know, I couldn't do what I do without my team. Do you create it's not blocks? a one-woman show. Do you create blocks of time where you're just sitting and focusing? Sort of. It's a nice idea. It's a nice idea. Okay. Um, Thai or Mexican? Mexican. California girl. Okay. Thai has been winning. Mexican is like coming up. I'm like Southern California. Also, like, do I want a singha or do I want a margarita? I want a margarita. Is that a question? Okay. Okay, good. Um, (laughs) And 
this one is tied into the name of our company, Liberty, and this podcast, Liberty Sessions. Um, we believe that women are liberated through entrepreneurship, and it's one way for them to be liberated. So it's a natural question for us to ask you, what does it mean to be liberated? And so I was saying earlier when I was reading these questions that, you know, it's an interesting time because yeah. we, as women have been feeling more liberated than it feels like we are at this moment in the political climate happening. The choices that we thought we could make for ourselves are not being made by us. And that is a really scary thing. And I think just being independent makes me feel liberated. It's making my own choices and looking after my own family and just being, it, that's a hard question. I yeah. feel like it's about being mindful about being liberated is the only way that you can feel liberated. Yeah, and I, I think as you talk about kind of the political climate, sure, it seems like we've taken steps back, but, and I'll just say for me personally, it feels like we moved the furniture and there was a lot of dirt and dust and stuff yeah. underneath, mm -hmm. and it was potentially masked by what felt like things were mm -hmm. going well. And so if there's anything that this um, new administration has done in this particular area, I think it's allowed us to really look more deeply at what, what needs to mean? be cleaned up yeah, from under yeah, the furniture. Yeah, it's because true. I think that there would there could have been another alternative to yeah. this president, and we may have gone along thinking we're, yeah. we've arrived. Yeah. Um, so maybe it's a little glass half yeah. full, but it's, well, we keep I like talking about the pendulum it. swinging, yeah. and it may have swung a little further in one direction yeah. than we were expecting, and now it has no choice but to swing but a little taking, bit the other direction yeah. and settle a little bit more into and I the think middle. We're taking responsibility for it. Yeah. Rachel, thank you for this it's time. It's so great this to talk so to you. Want to stay and hang out? I know. I love you. <laughs> Take care. We'll see you guys later. Bye, Liberty listeners. Liberty For Her is broadcast on all platforms, Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcast, and more. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review Liberty For Her on Apple Podcast. It helps us to know if these episodes are inspiring and equipping your ventures. Liberty For Her is produced by Netta Jones and Elizabeth Joy Windham, and music by Jordan Flower. likely the case that if you're listening to this podcast, you've either launched or want to launch a venture. And whether you're in growth mode or just getting started, it can be a lonely endeavor. Trust us, we know. Which is exactly why we connected with Entrepreneista. We wanted our community of podcast listeners to have access to the tools, the resources, and other female founders to connect with. So there's no reason to do this thing alone. In fact, we dare you not to. A few of the perks from Entrepreneurista include building your reputation. You'll get featured on their website, growing your business through office hours with their founders, Stephanie and Courtney, introductions to other investors, uh, exclusive discounts, connecting with the right people in the community, people who can really advance the work that you're doing and people that you can help along the way. Get invited to all sorts of conferences, events, and you can write this whole thing off as a business expense. That's the best part. Well, that's one of the best parts. To make the dare a little easier, head to www.entrepreneurista.com backslash liberty and use the code liberty25 for $25 off their membership fee. And for the record, I just became a paying member myself. So I'll see you over there.